0: Hi, everyone. Before we begin our podcast this week, I wanted to just tell you a couple things. The first is actually to apologize to you for not having an episode for you to listen to last week. I went on vacation, and I had planned to do some audio editing beforehand and get you something to listen to, but the chaos of pre-vacation work and all that, it just got to be too much, and I couldn't do it. So I hope uh, you're able to listen to this and enjoy this week uh, and its podcast, but I am sorry for not having that for you last week. The second thing is is that this is an episode where I try to keep the audio a bit more raw than I normally do. There's some times where it requires some thinking and some uh, exploring out loud, And so there might be some length to this one that we don't normally have, but I hope that you can listen through and discover kind of the process of what it is to think through things as we talk about philosophy, theology, its relationship to my faith and to my life and what it means for me. I'm so glad that you're listening to this episode. I hope you find it valuable And that's all I'm going to say for now. Enjoy the podcast, and we will see you uh, on the other side.
1: Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to our podcast, Frontier Faith. It's a a podcast where it's okay not to know. We uh, are doing this podcast because we're kind of exploring uh, new frontier in terms of our lives and theologically and spiritually, and we don't know where exactly we'll end up, but uh, we've been trying to find ways to get something really good out of the journey we're on. So my name is Ryan Harris.
0: My name is Nathan Whitaker.
1: And we're going to do something, well, we've done one like this before, but we're going to do something a little different than our regular format. And a little while ago, we did an episode where I talked about something that had had a probably outsized or really big effect on this journey that we're on for me. And for me, that was um, end times theology and how much that has affected my life and, and beliefs and all of that. And today we're going to do something similar with something that has been a really important part of Nate's story and his journey in regards to this frontier we're talking about. Um, and so we're going to ask him about that and just kind of see where that goes and see what we can get from that. I think, I think it'll be good. I think you'll like it. Well, since you've probably already seen the title of the episode, you have probably uh, solved the mystery and and know that for Nate, that this thing that was so important was um, philosophy. And he's going to talk about specifically what that means and what it doesn't mean. So, so Nate, in that regard, uh, what was, what did this mean as you were growing up? Like what kind of, what are we talking about here?
0: Yeah. So when I was growing up, (laughs) I remember a lot of our conversations in the past on this podcast uh, revolved on your side, a lot around anti intellectualism, Mm -hmm. uh, anti academia. And, you know, I, I was sure to mention that that was true for us too. We have the let's say, disguise of sounding smarter, because we we read theologians uh, probably a bit more, but we certainly read older theologians that talk uh, different and sound smarter, you know?
1: Plus, you have that intellectual approach to faith that we've talked about on other episodes, too. Yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, most of our pastors fancy themselves being academics, um, even, you know, they have master's degrees, so there's that, uh, and so on and so forth. But generally speaking, there is an anti-academia within Lutheranism. There might not be anti-intellectualism, but certainly an anti-academia, a a distrust of uh, post-secondary education and certainly um, doctorate level education.
1: So just, we don't have to get too far into this, but why is that? Why do they distrust it so much?
0: Well, I mean, the cynical in me says, or the cynic in me says, it's because um, they don't know how to handle what comes out of that. You know, what uh, what ideas, what theories and so forth come from that. And you could do all sorts of stuff. Like in our MDiv program, there, even though we have a class called Pastor's Counselor, there was a very uh, tenuous relationship between the uh discipline of psychology and being a counselor which is uh, just cuz it gets
1: psychology gets pretty suspect pretty quickly for
0: them huh yeah and i think like trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody who would be uh, this way i would suspect it's like uh they would say it's man's knowledge not god's knowledge ah uh,
1: okay is it like they see it as in opposition to God's knowledge, then
0: the things that they usually talk about, yeah, so they'll talk about you know evolution, they'll talk about certain um, psychological movements. Um, you know, Freud is a whipping boy for a lot of people. <laughs> Well, Freud is a whipping boy for the psychologist these days, but we won't tell them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, of course, philosophy, which we're talking about. Philosophy, the ideas of philosophy is basically theology is the king of philosophy. So why would you Uh, do anything beyond or within philosophy when you can get the cream of the crop, you know?
1: Oh, Uh, So theology kind of has supplanted philosophy in terms of its not just usefulness, but like... What's the point of philosophy? Because we have the better thing.
0: Right. Yeah. Mm. And uh, the thing with God as the answer, or at least the, that's totally unfair, but you know, for most people that would probably be true for the, the smarter within our church body, it would be that uh, God and scripture uh, can, can mesh well or mesh better with some of the philosophical or psychological or whatever concepts out there. Um, But there is this antagonism where it's like, if we get too far, you talked about the slippery slope when it came to going to college, right? Mm. Uh, That is certainly true. Like, study, know what you're studying, but, you know, it would be very hard to find a Christian in our church body going into study evolutionary biology or anything (laughs) like that, you know? Yeah. So there would be certain things. Philosophy would be another one. Uh, In fact, just as a quick thing, I went to a conference that our church body, uh, well, our church body doesn't officially put it on, but it's basically members from our church body. And uh, my friend was such an asshole. If you're (laughs) listening, Saul, I tell this story all the time. (laughs) He
1: does. It had a, it really scarred him.
0: (laughs) So I'm going around with him because he's a great guy. I like spending time with him. And uh, he starts doing something he does really well, which is hobnobbing. So he's just talking to all these people and introducing me. I don't know who any of them are, but it's kind of nice to meet him. And I happened to meet one of his friends who has a table right next to him, which is all about apologetics.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm laughing because I know where this is going,
0: but So my friend kept on talking to him and... I'm standing there with my thumb up my ass trying to figure out what to do, you know, and this guy (laughs) at the table notices and he starts talking to me and he's like, uh, basically his whole argument is philosophy in college is killing faith because people (laughs) don't know. the people to tell that
1: too. I know, right?
0: (laughs) And uh, so I played the game a little bit and um, realized that he didn't know what the hell he was talking about. So I just, you know... Like, smiled and nod and went off my way. But, you know, it's that kind of idea, especially for Lutherans. I don't know. Did you have this a lot? It'd be cur- I'd be curious. Um, yeah, I think there was um The fear very... of the... I know the... I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt necessarily, but there's that movie, God is Dead, where he Ray. goes to college and you know has this fake show with a philosophy professor just hilarious <laughs> but it's like uh, this underlying fear of some people that you go to college you lose your faith cuz you're thinking the philosophy
1: yeah i mean i think that was present i um i think there was like i remember my parents kind of warning me of they never said don't study any of those things they just kind of said you know as you're doing that just keep in mind that Like kind of like you have the truth, so don't let that stuff like ruin it for you. But it doesn't hurt to learn it. So it wasn't quite what you're describing, but in terms of like generally speaking, yeah, it was there for us too.
0: Okay. Yeah, Um, I think that's probably what we mostly had. But uh, an easier example, of course, would be like this apologetic guy where he's like, college kids or high school kids go off to college, they lose their faith because they take a philosophy class. And I'm just thinking to myself, a little bit of a spoiler for the rest of the conversation, well, maybe you should talk about philosophy before you get to <laughs> college, you know, and well, just be and, honest
1: about it. You know, you might want to know what it is you're afraid of before you decide if it's that scary. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves yeah, here. Yeah. So, um, so it sounds like then the reason that they were so death on philosophy was because philosophy was either... I don't know if it was evil, but that it was was it idolatrous? Was it gonna ruin your faith? Or like what, what was what was the, yeah, the dangerous thing? Dangerous. dangerous. Because it was gonna make you not a Christian anymore.
0: Yeah, or a slippery slope or whatever. Um hmm. but then the other side, which we kind of touched on, is like if it's not dangerous, it might might as well be useless because you have the better philosophy in theology, right? It kind oh. of a condensed philosophy
1: so at best so at worst it's dangerous and at best it's kind of quaint huh
0: yeah yeah
1: okay okay
0: and that's kind of how i grew up i i really did grow up with uh philosophy not on my radar necessarily um and anytime philosophy came up it's weird because I think a lot of pastors are acquainted with at least the enemies, or let's say, the cultural enemies of philosophy. So the ones that they think are problematic, right? So easily it would be uh, Darwin. Darwin was a philosopher, but also scientist or a scientist and also a philosopher. But then you have others like Hume, and who's the other guy with Hume? There's always a second. Well,
1: Descartes was kind of, I mean, they weren't together, but they were kind of working off each other. Well, he was working off of Descartes, but um, I know the one you mean, but I can't think of it. Uh, well,
0: Descartes was usually seen as good because... Well,
1: he rationalized God's existence for yeah. you.
0: Mm-hmm. There's whole Enlightenment, what's the word? Like the empiricists? Yeah, or? empiricists, the whole empiricist... Uh, uh, track of, uh, and so they'll, they'll, uh, I'm sorry, whole empiricist track of philosophy, and people were really against that in my growing up because, well,
1: that's probably because like people like Voltaire and stuff kind of talk, used it to talk about how there was no need for God, and right, that kind of stuff, I imagine, was what was in their minds,
0: right? And new atheism was kind of growing at that time, kind of got to a head in uh, my college years mm-hmm, and a little mm-hmm. beyond, right. Uh, so uh, those are those are an easy connection to make if you right. have scientists who are atheists and saying the things is like well, Hume will lead you down to hell mm-hmm. types or like
1: you knew they knew that Nietzsche said God is dead but they didn't know what it meant
0: <laughs> yeah oh, <laughs> you yeah. know they d-
1: didn't know what he example. actually meant by that but yeah I remember him coming up as like a boogeyman of of well not of sorts he was one he was you know?
0: yeah. Very clearly. I mean, that one in in that uh, movie that we referenced, God is Dead, that's what it's coming from, Mm, is mm -hmm. Nietzsche. Nietzsche's saying that, and of course, no Christian really understands what... Well, I wouldn't say no, but most Christians don't really know what Nietzsche's actually saying there. Right. Uh, But because it's a handy enemy for man's wisdom, then there you go. Okay. So would you say then that... I mean, it almost sounds like...
1: They were rejecting their straw man conception of all these philosophers or philosophies rather than what may or may not have actually been believed or taught or written by the specific philosophers. Yeah,
0: there was no like the way I could say that there's no critical thinking around philosophy. It's just like, here's what we hear what philosophers are saying or we read second or third or fourth hand, uh, you know. Literature around it. We don't read primary sources, which would be a big uh, mm. thing we need to do if we're going to actually engage these people.
1: So you read what other people say about yeah. them, but not what they actually wrote themselves, huh?
0: Well, one one that's really famous, uh, which we'll get to probably a little bit later. Well, at least uh, it'll be in the background of my mind is it, D. A. Carson. Ugh. D. A. Oh, Carson. Sorry. He he does this. He, He's the worst. <laughs> We have somebody in our church body, I won't say who he is, but he's pretty famous too. He's got a blog that a lot of people follow and he does the same thing. He kind of takes philosophy and tells people what they should know about that philosopher rather than uh, probably what I would do as a teacher is expound what that philosopher is trying to communicate, even though it's you know going through secondhand. I would always say... <laughs> read them. I know it it sucks sometimes. You got to read these people if you really want to know what's going on. But until you get there, this is kind of what it looks like, their argument or Mm -hmm. their whatever it might be. But these folks like D.A. Carson and others will just give kind of a distilled, of course, completely biased distilled view of this philosopher. And that's the argument that happens. So that way there's not a whole lot of critical thinking. It's just Uh, parenting or um, adapting what others have said to uh, fit the needs of the argument that's going on right now at that, you know, in that conversation.
1: Right. So given that that was the way you conceived of, honestly, just philosophy in general, um, not to mention any other things that are kind of in that same family, but the way you saw it as a whole. um, So what began to make that change for you, or you know, were there experiences you had that that kind of changed your thinking or or what what was going on there?
0: I think uh, it's funny because it was all the way into my doctorate program with with you that mm-hmm. I had my first experience that kind of solidified. It's hard to trace all of the little remnants. Um like I had a philosophy. Couple philosophy courses in college that were interesting, um, and I'm sure in the midst of that, it's like, well, that's not quite what I heard growing mm. up. Mm-hmm. Probably because you know, because it was basic stuff like uh, a survey of Plato, Plato and Descartes yeah. and Kant and all those the big the big shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm sure that all kind of fed into it. But we took a class. Um, it was a history class in our, <laughs> uh, by a, a professor who, uh, a fascinating guy and sometimes very hard to follow. <laughs> um, but it was a class where he outlined, it was something like Western thought, Christianity it, and Western thought.
1: Yeah. Or theology and philosophy. It was some, I think it was history of philosophy and Western thought or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And uh, we went to a school where you didn't really get a choice. Sometimes you did, but you didn't really get a choice of what courses you had to take. And Not and a, a lot, yeah. Yeah, that was one of our cross-department ones. We yeah. had to take that one. Everybody took that class. Yeah, and so as we were taking that class, uh, I j- I'll share the first experience that just kind of changed my world completely. And there's so
1: many of them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, this class was very... Um, powerful in that it just gave me access to things I did not have before. Hmm. And through that access, I remember, I remember, because I was, you know, in in St. Louis, we were doing this, and I remember the exact uh, Panera that I went to just to read philosophy. And, Hmm. you know, I read uh, Plato's account of creation, Tim Timios or something like that. Something
1: like that, yeah. Uh
0: and I just remember it was such an activating experience to me because I'm reading this and I don't quite get it, but I get it enough that it's sparking a curiosity in me. And I'm starting to think there's something here. But the big one that really changed my life forever. Uh it was this class, it was this it was actually a lecture. It wasn't just the course uh, materials. It was a lecture where we read uh, Plato's famous uh, soul account. It was in Plato's Phaedrus. Uh, I wish I could be smart to really tell you that I knew that offhand. We have to look it up. But uh, in that account, in that uh, philosophical text, there's a description of the soul uh, of a chariot. So the soul's in a chariot, and it's driven by these passions and these three horsemen, or three horses. And the idea of the soul is to kind of guide all of the, you the know, things that man has. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the class, uh, the professor said something that really struck me as strange at first, but then he built the case. He said... The soul is an invention of Greek philosophy. And, you know, of course, that short-circuited me. I'm right, like,
1: like alarm bells are going yeah, off here. No, yeah.
0: that can't be true.
1: <laughs> we talk about this Have all all the Have you read your Bible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and so then he says, no, you you look at the um, text of the scriptures, and in the Old Testament, whenever soul is used as a translation, it's nephesh, which means breath. Mm-hmm. And in the New Testament, it's zoe, which means life. Right. So soul is always life and breath. Uh, there is no concept of soul in scripture, uh, literally speaking. And, and I'm in a phase right now when I'm taking this class where literal is king. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I'm, I'm having this real cognitive problem. I'm learning, and we've already talked about how I hate being surprised um, Mm -hmm. with learning things, but I'm learning something I've been taught my whole life about Christianity, about the soul and about all that, is a construct of philosophy, meaning that it was created within philosophy to make a wider philosophical argument that Plato was having. And nobody told me about this. And yeah. well, I would be surprised if many people,
1: you know, and pastors and such knew that.
0: Right. Well, and I have found out that's true. Most people do not know about this. In fact, it's one of the things that I can do. I tell people, you know, kind of when I want to be an asshole is I say, hey, I can break your faith in a matter of minutes if you let me. Um, yeah. And one of the ways that you could do that is say, do you realize that the soul is a creation of outside the, the scriptures? Hmm. Um I actually think it's if done well, it moves people away from a strict literalism, um, which is good. But for me, in that experience, that was earth shattering because well, your paradigm, so, your
1: paradigms didn't just shift here; they no, were like exploding.
0: Yes, uh, Plato took a hammer to it all—a <laughs> sledgehammer—and just shattered it all. Mm-hmm. And then. I had that experience over and over again in that class. Mm-hmm. It was just, uh, you know, it's so much that I, I don't really remember all those other ones because it just all built back to this one experience I had where I'm sitting there and I'm thinking this soul that we talk about so much, this has been given to us by, a th- uh, by man's wisdom to just mm-hmm. use my heritage language, uh, that shouldn't be possible. Right. So, so help me understand then, because like, if you were taught the whole time that
1: philosophy would break your faith, isn't like it sounds like that's what happened with with uh, Phaedrus here. Is is so like what I'm trying to say is why it it seems strange that that would be a thing that set set you off on this journey rather than see they were right. We shouldn't be doing this. (laughs)
0: Yeah, um, so for me, I I bug people like crazy, because I ask questions all the time, because I'm always exploring, always questioning. He's an, in, he's an inquisitive fellow. Yeah. My favorite word is why. I like to ask why. Uh, if you listen to our podcast, it's pretty much what I do with Ryan all the mm-hmm. time, and mm-hmm. um, And I think what happened, of course, initially it was devastating, right? And you have those moments where you're like, okay, I don't want to give this up, but it was such a convincing case. And so I'm just living this horrible tension of what do I do with both of these things? I still believe God. I still believe all that. But this was made in such a really convincing way, not just by the professor, but you know, by the proof that he had. Scripture doesn't talk this way. Plato's the first one that really comes up with this notion, at least at that moment. That's what kind of came to my mind. And Mm -hmm. so how do I hold all this together? And meanwhile, I got to pass the class and, you know, all that stuff. Bit of a disaster academically speaking anyway. (laughs) Right. And so, uh, you know, it's just like in the moment I'm sitting there and I'm just letting it happen and kind of doing what students do to try to get through it. But as time has gone on, um, I've just become more aware of how impactful that was to open up, uh, quite literally, the frontier that we're on. It started to do that. Uh, And the experience that I had by the end of that class was really important. So that's why I said immediately that's how I was feeling. But by the end of that class, the professor was – he was good at this. There were lots of things he was not that great at, but what he was good at was saying, you know, you don't have to figure this out because that's, that's how I annoyed him. I'm like, okay, so you say, this is this creation. This is that creation. What's, what's true is basically the question I'd be asking. Tell me me the answer. Yeah. (laughs) And he was the first one, um, In my doctorate level, especially, that said, it's okay not to know the answer. In fact, look at all these. It's okay not to know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) He said in fact look at all these philosophers they don't know either they they're saying they do but they don't know either because then you know after Plato comes Aristotle and Aristotle says Plato's full of shit and, right and then you know, that's
1: kind of the history of philosophy yeah. they're all saying Plato's <laughs> full of shit but anyway
0: well even in modern philosophy you get to right. Descartes and then Kant comes around and says yeah Descartes not quite right there's this that and the other and then mm-hmm. on and on Hegel right. and so on and so forth until you
1: right? get to Wittgenstein who solved
0: philosophy according to him, but yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I learned that valuable lesson. Not only did it break me, um, and it was more a theological thing. Um, um, I'm rather sorry, more cognitive thing because, um, part of our heritage is one where faith is given to us and can't be taken away. So I think Mm -hmm. I was still very confident in that, that realm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm just I'm I'm too stubborn when it comes to I like to be somebody who thinks differently, so I think that was part of it too.
1: Hmm. So okay, so that that takes place, and I was in that class with you, so I was kind of seeing some of this, you know, go on. Um, and I know it was right after that that we had our next class, which I imagine was the next <laughs> the next big part of this. Oh yeah. Um, do you want to talk about that some?
0: Yeah, so uh, that that class was, so if you could summarize the first class, the history class, that was called, like I would summarize it as modern philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Taylor was in that class too, the, yeah. the Canadian philosopher Taylor, and he's kind of on the border. Um,
1: yeah, he is kind of a bridge between the two, in, in, yeah. a, in some ways anyway, whether yeah. he intends to be or not, I, I don't know, but It really depends
0: on which one you read of his. Like, sometimes I can't stand what he says. Other times it's beautiful. He certainly says it with many, many (laughs) words. Yeah, his book was the longest, wasn't it? It's like
1: 900 pages we had to read (laughs) in a week. Ugh. Yeah. Spoiler, Fortunately, I, I didn't read all 900
0: pages. Yeah. Fortunately, it wasn't Der- Deridian language. It was at least <laughs> something you could read quickly. I didn't read all 900 either, but yeah. Um, um, another so, crash course in reading when it comes to how you do it. Yeah. In philo- anyway, um, so that was modern philosophy. And then, I mean, the professor was bold. He actually got approved. And uh, it was one of those classes that was in our department. And so we had mm-hmm. to take it. Mm-hmm. it was quite literally called postmodern philosophy mm-hmm. and and side note i took
1: this class and didn't know what the hell that even was oh well, me so either. you know no. so yeah we had
0: no idea what we were in for here and uh he asked uh, the professor asked at the beginning of class why are you taking this and i was just very like I don't know if you remember my answer to that, but it was very vulnerable and very true. I was like, well, we just took this one class and I realized that uh, philosophy and theology are so tied together and I'm trying to find a way out of that. And the professor looks at me and he says, well, you're kind of in the wrong class. You you might not like this then, yeah. (laughs) And that was a class that um, was both, uh, let's say it both continued the <laughs> paradigm shift mm-hmm. but it also made me comfortable with it so i had this like weird experience of being um very uncomfortable and comfortable at the same time
1: well and it kind of rejects paradigms in general i think you could yeah, even say right <laughs> so um Okay, so then, just for people who don't maybe know, and I'm not going to say tell us what postmodern philosophy is, but because you know that's kind of a silly question, but something asshole
0: academics come in and tell you you can't do that, but
1: right, but but something like so, um, and maybe that's just talking about one or two of the the people we read that was that were so important to you, but like like what does that mean without trying to extensively you know define That entire school of thought.
0: So the simplest way to think about postmodern philosophy um, isn't actually all that fulfilling, but it's just, it's important. It situates where it is. So it starts in the 1960s, roughly. Mm -hmm. And philosophy in France and the continent of Europe um, mm-hmm. not Germany although there are some Germans of course but it,
1: it was a lot in reaction to some of the German
0: right uh, German idealism yeah yep. mm-hmm. yeah so it was mostly in France it was in other areas as well and it was a reaction to a lot of philosophy not just in German in Germany the idealism although that was its main focus but also in, across the pond uh, as we would say or they would say up in the across the channels probably what they would say Um mm-hmm to the British Isles and what was going on there. And uh, it was just the next way of thinking about philosophy. And, you know, the starter figure would be um, either Heidegger or mm-hmm. Sassur. Right, um, I was going to say, yeah. And just a very quick side note, it's that's why it's called
1: postmodern philosophy, just simply because it comes after modern philosophy
0: and, right, is, and is
1: in reaction to.
0: In academic circles, it's actually called uh, continental versus mm. analytic uh, philosophy. So, analytic,
1: Which is a more accurate way of describing it, probably right.
0: But nobody has that handle um, when you talk to people, lay people in general, lay people when it comes to philosophy. No one knows what analytic means. So, <laughs> uh, but that captures pretty much all of modern philosophy, especially what happens in Brit- the British Isles. But um, because they build off of uh, the German idealism and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Heidegger was German. Uh, he's a pretty famous guy. Most people would at least recognize the name. They probably don't know who he is, but he was a huge philosopher who, um, I don't want to go too much into it, but he moved beyond Hegel. And Hegel was a big guy too. Uh, and Heidegger pretty much said that philosophy was defined for almost all of its history from Plato onwards around being about uh, the existence of man, the existence Mm -hmm. of... uh, Technically, it would be called ontology. So like what it means to exist
1: or how people uh, understand existence, like that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah. So ontology is the study of... Uh, the branch of philosophy that deals with existence, what is or is not. And Heidegger said, basically, all philosophy has dealt with that. And he uh, he reconceptualized that. Let's just say it like that. I don't need to go into Heidegger too much, because then I'll sound stupid, because I don't know much about it <laughs> Because we don't know that much about Heidegger. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a forebearer of postmodern or continental philosophy, In fact, uh, the guy that I study, uh, Emmanuel Levinas, he is a um, student of Heidegger, Mm -hmm. and he continues that tradition. And so is uh, a big guy, Derrida, who we'll Mm -hmm. talk about in a bit. But the other main one, and this was important because this is kind of what captured the shift for me completely, is uh, Sassour. And Sassour of course, is French. And he proposed, in a kind of the middle ground way, he's not completely in continental philosophy, and he's not completely in ontology, um, but he proposed that philosophy should be situated around language. Okay. And that's crucial, because if, if philosophy is around language and how we talk about things and how we think about things, um, instead of how they are in existence then it shifts how we talk about literally everything. So
1: just to make sure I understand here, it's been a long time since I thought about some of these people. (laughs) 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 Um, So is it, is it that ontology is about like trying to figure out, not just how things are, but how things are as they really are, like right. capital R reality kind of right. thing. Whereas Sasur comes along and says, "Well, the important part is how that is all shaped by language, like yeah. how language um, creates those kinds of things."
0: Yeah. So let's do a little social, or let, a thought experiment. A good one that comes up with Sassoor all the time is: Everyone who's listening, think of a tree what is a tree? A lot of people will ask that question in philosophy. And uh, the basic answer, I'm doing a horrible job of of getting people there, but there's a tree-ness to being a tree, right? It could be that there's some sort of bark to it. There's some sort of leaves to it, some roots. It's a plant, but it's not quite a plant. It's a it's it's a tree it's because there's
1: something right. different between a tree and a cucumber, for example. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah. So a tree, it has a tree ness to it. Uh, Wittgenstein, who you mentioned, talked about red. Red is there's a redness to red. There's no way around red. Um, but what Sartor said is okay. Well, what about Baum? Baum is uh, German for tree. And a German is going to think about tree a lot differently than American. Mm-hmm. Uh, a German will think about how the references that they have in their life. Uh, in fact, a lot of uh, people, um, depending on where you are in the world, you depend on trees. To right. build houses, to uh, build tools, and so on and so forth.
1: Or you might live in an area that doesn't have trees.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you might know. be in a desert, right? Where Which there's is no trees, and going to make it hard to conceive of trees. Yeah, and yeah. you could try to explain what a tree is, but then you know, I'm I don't know how accurate this would be, but maybe their closest parallel would be a uh, a pillar or something. Um, yeah,
1: or a cactus or something. I don't know. Yeah, a
0: cactus. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, So there's this idea of tree-ness, the tree, and what most of us do, especially when it comes to ontology, it gets really complicated, but most of us just assume we know what we mean when we say tree, because for us, a tree is a tree. There's no way around it, uh, and we have some sort of agreement around what a tree is, um, ontologically so. Uh, there's bark to it, right? It's usually starts out small and, and thin and the uh, trunk grows up and gets big. and mm-hmm. we well, you know we've got tree rings in our modern era. We know that that details its age. Um, we know that tree leaves fall and they, you know, so most of us think that that's what tree is. And yet Saussure is saying, what about Baum? What about what it says in other languages? And then what about other regions? What about other uh, life situations? Like somebody who's dependent on trees, a lumberjack or something, and somebody who hasn't ever heard of trees. Um, and so what he does is he helps problematize ontology. Uh, that there is no tree ness uh, wouldn't be something Sassur says. That's something his, his disciple later on would say.
1: How we kind of understand what he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But he questions it and he starts to do two things. So we've already done it, and his disciple Jacques Derrida just influences this tremendously. And I'm going to use his description of Sassur rather than Sassur's alone. But there are two factors of us understanding something ontologically, which is really through language. And one is difference. So a tree is not a plant. A tree is not a house. A rock. A rock, an animal, bee, whatever. And also deferring. So a tree has bark. So I'm deferring to another Mm -hmm. A concept. A tree has leaves, a tree stands tall, a tree, uh, you know, changes colors, so on and so forth.
1: Because there is, we want like, we want this like single mono concept. This is a tree. But when we try and like you said, when we're trying to explain what that is, is when we have to defer to all these other things that are not a tree to explain the tree.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And uh, the classic example of this is a dictionary. There is no word in the dictionary that just stands by itself. Right. Every single word in the dictionary has other words that refer to it so that you can know what it is. And this is what deferring and difference is all about. And, of course, Jacques Derrida calls this difference, and he talks about how there's this play between all of this. But when it comes to language, that was that's the key idea that kind of kicks off postmodern philosophy or continental philosophy is this idea around, um, what Jacques Derrida would say, difference.
1: Okay. So if we could circle that back then, so this idea of language being kind of what shapes philosophy and understanding and all of that it seems to be the one of these key things that you know busted your paradigms and were we're being mm-hmm. part of this journey for you yeah. so how how did it do that so like why was it important that w- when you started thinking about language in that
0: way well let's go back to the example of plato so when i experienced that about the soul that was earth shattering because i was thinking ontologically i was thinking scripture has this concept called a soul and it comes from scripture, meaning it's divine. Right. And just right. Cause it came right from God. Right. Yep. And when I experienced that, that was not the case, then it really floored me. I was like, wait a second. Then is there anything called a soul? That's an ontological mm-hmm. question, right? Right. Is a soul real? <laughs> um, with language, what starts to happen is you start to talk about things, and so now I'm not too uncomfortable saying soul. I prefer not to, but soul is one of the ways that we talk about zoe and Nefesh. Mm. you know? So, and like, so,
1: is there a soul? Well, it depends. What do maybe? you mean?
0: Yeah. And when it comes to difference or difference, then soul might be in that play. It might be mm. part of what we use to help us understand what God is saying, to us in his word about Nefesh and Zoe. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was more, uh, it gave me hope. Now, I have done a lot of work to be able to describe that. And I hope I described it well enough that anyone who's listening understands that. That was years of work because Mm -hmm. the people I'm reading are terrible to read so it's not just
1: not just work it was lots of anxiety too yeah yeah (laughs) even some fear you know because all these things we thought were foundational turned out to not be or or maybe even the foundation was cracked and broken
0: exactly and i really started to think that the big thing for me was philosophy was an enemy when i went into the one class and then it proved to be something that we actually really depend on. Hmm.
1: So, okay, so say more about that. So, like, was this new thinking that you were doing, like, how did this relate to your conception of theology? Because that's been kind of tied into this whole thing for you from the beginning.
0: I think at first, because of the the way that I am as a person, uh, I think at first I was trying to find a way to defeat it. and. Mm -hmm to solve the problem, right? Well, it makes the
1: this... anxiety go away, yeah, too, right? Yeah, exactly, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> so flustered by all of this, I'm like, well, at least if I figure out <laughs> what I can do to get rid of this problem, then then I can go on to other things, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as I realized that that was a fool's errand and not the point entirely, I started to realize that there's a relationship between philosophy and theology that I didn't quite know at the time. And a book that really helped with this is from uh, one of my favorite uh, philosophical theologians or theological philosophers, as he would say, uh, Jack Caputo, John D. Caputo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it was this book called Philosophy and Theology. And so in the book, very briefly, he says that we've gone through three main epochs. Well, we've gone through two and we're in a third one. The first in time was that philosophy reigned the day, right? Philosophy right. was the way. In West, philosophy is the one that did everything. Right. And then uh, after a while, theology took over. And theology besmirched philosophy, just like philosophy besmirched mythology or religion.
1: <laughs> while well, also setting itself up to be the same kind of thing, ironically yeah, enough. Right.
0: Yeah. He said, that's just the way things are, and we've inherited that history as people. And he said that he suggests that we start thinking about it as, in that phrase, philosophy and theology, the nouns aren't the important one words. The important word is and. Right. And the importance of what we can do together as academics, as thinkers, is try to figure out how philosophy and theology work together depending on what our projects are. Which, side note,
1: folks, if you're at all interested in this kind of stuff, Caputo is a great place to start because he is, I think, by far the most accessible, um, understandable in terms of starting out to think about this kind of stuff. Um, At least he was for me, anyway.
0: That book especially, that one's really good. Uh, Let me give another recommendation. There is a Church in Postmodern uh, series, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's who... What would Jesus deconstruct was by right. Caputo, mm-hmm. but there's also um, who is afraid of postmodernism. Yeah. Who is afraid of postmodernism? Guy, yeah, James K. A. Smith was
1: that right. one, I think. Yeah, and
0: James K. A. Smith is probably the most accessible. I have issues with James. Uh, I think he's okay, uh, but uh, you know, as a entry point into this conversation, James is probably really good. And then Caputo, once you start to get some of the language under your belt he would be a good follow-up he he can be pretty dense too like but comparatively speaking to some of the others i found
1: okay so we've talked about uh how your thinking changed in terms of language and how fundamentally if you can say that how important language was to this whole thing for you and um then we talked about philosophy and theology and their relationship which you've been had been rethinking um was there any other big or were there any other big concepts or ideas or something like that that were also a central part of this journey for you
0: well we've kind of talked about or we've mentioned his name a few times but Jacques Derrida, uh, the French philosopher, above all French philosophers. Uh, <laughs> uh, brain bender, that one. <laughs> he uh, he was very instrumental, especially his idea, not of difference, although that's, we've already talked about that, that was a big thing for me too, but deconstruction would be a big one too. And out of all the things that people know about postmodernism, deconstruction is probably the, the one that most will say
1: yeah although as we experienced in another class many people who know about deconstruction have a caricature and not really understanding of what deconstruction is and isn't but that's right yes people have heard the term partly because derrida's stuff was used a lot in lit lit
0: criticism right Um, and so some people know about it from that as well yeah, and you're right. Most people don't know what it actually is. Uh, I, I have a hard time knowing what it <laughs> well, is. Well, that's kind of in its nature, isn't it? Yeah.
1: If it has a nature.
0: <laughs> a lot of people think it's an active thing that you do, so you deconstruct, and so you get this uh, this notion that uh, postmodern philosophy is about destroying old things and so back
1: up back up a second here so what are we deconstructing if if that's what we're doing right let's just like so what what's going on here
0: yeah Uh, (laughs) i mean the the glib answer would be everything right that would be the glib answer but it doesn't actually answer the question Uh, deconstruction is actually a force i think is probably the best way to think about it initially is a force that happens within systems because systems naturally cannot hold up on their own. They have to have a force within them that both counter the system and support it. And I'm trying not to get too deep into the weeds here, but deconstruction is the recognition that those forces... Rather, it's not the force itself that's deconstruction, but it's the recognition that those forces are simply ways in which the system upholds itself. So So how
1: how about an example?
0: Yeah. So I think a really good example would be uh, a believer versus unbeliever. Uh, For Christians, this is a big binary that upholds our system of evangelism. So... You have two categories. You have two groups of people. One are called believers, and they believe in Jesus Christ. Um, they're saved. They are part of the church, uh, hopefully, <laughs> um, and more. And unbelievers are those that are outside the faith. They are not part of what's going on. Um, they're, they may be antagonistic, but they may just be not interested, or they haven't heard about Jesus Christ. So and,
1: so this is going on between two things that are set up in opposition to each other, two concepts in this case.
0: Right. And so the way the interplay between them is, right, believers have to go outside their comfort zone and go into unbeliever territory to try to uh, convert them or convince unbelievers to come inside, this is the Lutheran approach, <laughs> come inside the believer territory to experience um, the we wouldn't say it, but I'll say it. The love of God, the love of Christ, God through Christ to experience the grace, the forgiveness is how most, most Lutherans would say that. Really what the binary is set up to do is to erode the binary. So you don't actually, in that binary, you don't want people who are unbelievers if you're a believer, right? You don't want You want that. to make them believers. You want to make them all believers so that right. way you don't have it. Um, And yet, this is where deconstruction kind of shows itself, right? Christians have been around for 2,000 some years, and yet they're still unbelievers. So it kind of like Jesus said, you always have the poor with us, with you. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll always have unbelievers with us. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh And the way that deconstruction works is to recognize that play between the two and shows how... Um, the ways we hold up the system ignore that. So this happens in Christianity all the time, um, especially when it comes to challenging questions. Like we've mentioned quite a few in this podcast. I'm going to use one that you talked about, Ryan, which is the missional drive in your yeah. last story of the uh, end times, right? Um, you know, that's hiding a very scary question which is what happens when people don't hear about Jesus. And, you know, it doesn't seem right for us in the paradigm of the binary of unbeliever believer, but it makes logical sense that those people would go to hell in that because they're not believers. They're not in the right category yet for us. It makes illogical. It's, you know, it's not compassionate. So it's hard for us as people who, uh, generally care about people. We want to see everybody, you know, saved. Uh, And in that question that we ask around, well, what happens when people don't get a chance, then we start answering questions or or, I'm sorry, creating new structures like age of accountability. That would be Mm -hmm. one that Mm -hmm. isn't your system. Yeah. in a Catholic system it would be purgatory. Right. So you have got that. And our system, um, We have uh we don't have a lot for that. We just kind of say, well, God takes care of it. Which in and of itself is another out if you will. It is. Uh and what deconstruction does is it shows itself by saying that actually where you want to put your focus is on that hard question rather than maintaining the binary. So what Christians do, and we've seen this, they focus more on making sure That either the believer category is really secure and the unbeliever category is really secure or creating those systems around them so that even when they're not secure, there's a way out, as you just said. Mm -hmm. But what happens with people who experience deconstruction is they just can't get away from that question. They can't get away from, well, in this system, some people are never going to hear about Jesus and yet they're going to go to hell. How is that fair?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so in this example, deconstruction kind of, I think you said this, but just to, you know, Mm -hmm. re-say it, deconstruction is saying, let's not focus on the system itself. And let's focus on that question. What about those people? Right? So like- this process of almost unraveling has gone on because we have these two monolithic things that are set up in opposition to each other, because by doing that, we get to avoid <laughs> the stuff that's actually going on Right. more importantly.
0: Yeah. And it's not even really a choice. Most people would say deconstruction. I was saying this at the beginning and Ryan thankfully slowed me down. deconstruction is not something you actively do. No one does deconstruction. That's ridiculous. Um, We can destroy things. We can do destruction, but deconstruction is something that just happens within systems. And so what, and this is like, this example is perfect because it's happening with people my age and younger all the time. It's like, people leave the church because they hate this question they're yeah. like well if that's the god that i worship yeah no then thanks huh? no thanks right yeah. why would i why would a god do that and some people have the same response or same question but they respond completely differently and they say well then uh, you know we just have to make sure everybody hears about jesus all the time and that becomes their life mission and so on and so forth
1: Welcome to Pentecostalism.
0: Uh, Yeah. So what happens in deconstruction is this question just insists. That's a a Caputo word. Um, The insistence of the gospel is what he would say. It just kind of insists that this happens instead of exists. So this question insists upon the existence of the categories to be kind Mm. of philosophical in the French way. They love that kind of stuff. Uh, And by its insistence, by constantly insisting on asking that question, it starts to make us reconsider, not at first, the entire system, maybe sometimes we get there, but certainly, and this is where postmodern really helps, certainly the language we use within that system to hold it up, maybe that language, unbeliever, believer, isn't as helpful because it sets up a paradigm that makes it so that God looks like either a monster, well, really, just God looks like a monster, and we well, have to deal way, with it. Either way, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So in a sense, you could almost say, in, in this example, and maybe in general, and I know it's. I'm going to try and distill <laughs> deconstruction here, which is always a dangerous
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. thing,
1: but it's almost like it's a really powerful microscope that you that you, I don't know if you use it, but that that shows you what's more going on than it appears if you only think of things in its broader categories.
0: Yeah. Another good example uh, to, to help think about this is um, I forget his first name, but Kuhn, he is Thomas. Is is it Thomas? Thomas Kuhn. He's a postmodern or continental philosophical scientist.
1: Yeah, philosopher of science, I yeah. think, yeah.
0: And he does a really good job. And what he says is that uh, he, he – t- take relativity, right? So you've got uh, Isaac Newton. You've got uh, – <laughs> I'm so bad at this. Uh, Albert Einstein uh-huh. and uh, whoever the quantum guy is, right? Now we're in quantum theory and uh, I don't that kind know. Of stuff. Or whatever. <laughs> Bob. Whatever's after that, yeah. <laughs> quantum Bob. <laughs> so – The way that he suggested deconstruction shows itself. Now, he wasn't explicit like this, but it's a really good metaphor, is that Isaac Newton comes around, he has this theory. Mm -hmm. And this theory kind of helps people understand gravity. Sure. And not just gravity, but the ontology of existence, right? So we understand who we are on this planet. And what ends up happening as they go along, assuming that this is reality, little aberrations pop up. Mm -hmm. It's like, here, there's this little problem here. And it's not a big thing. It's just like, okay, that our theory can't really explain that.
1: Can't account for X. Yeah.
0: And it goes on. And eventually, another one will come up. And then another one. And another one. And sometimes there might be a big one. But generally, what happens is there's just enough that those theories don't account for that makes it so that we have to come up with a new theory. And that's what Albert Einstein does. He comes up with the theory of relativity, which helps understand what Newton was trying to get at. And, that's and those unravelings
1: back. along the way were kind of def- well, definitely the stew that led to where Einstein went. Right. right. Like his yeah. thought and his ideas and such.
0: Exactly. And then we adopted relativity. We, meaning the scientific community, adopted relativity. And as they go, there's little aberrations here that, that here and there. It's like, well, doesn't count for this. And neither does Newton, by the way. It's not like an either or. It's like Newton doesn't account for this because it's way out of Newton's field, right? We're he may not have been trying world. to. Yeah. yeah. So now Einstein's relativity doesn't do that and do that and do that. So we've got to come to a new one. And again, it's not intentional. None of this is intentional. It's just like okay, so we are thinking through things, we're experiencing life differently. And, you know, gosh, this, the span between Newton and Einstein's huge, right?
1: It's a few years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then we come up with a new one because not, we're intentionally saying we got to figure out a problem to all this, but because of all those aberrations adding up, we're like, uh, it doesn't quite account for things. And all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, you know, smart guys at some point, yeah. Yeah. But because of that stew, as you say, a new theory comes out. Uh, that's another metaphor of what happens. And instead of totalizing theories in theology, it's more like ideas, right? More concepts or what uh, my education would say handles. handling of what theology is trying to tell us about God. And so we, we have to adopt new handles. To help us understand because of all the little aberrations that happen along the way.
1: Okay. Um, that's probably the best we can do with deconstruction yeah. <laughs> right now. Um, but so, given all of this, then with language, with the- theology and philosophy, and you're rethinking their relationship or what they are and deconstruction, so how did all of this tie in with your faith? Like, how did this stuff change this st- pretty radically for you?
0: Yeah. So the first answer is actually really easy. It made taboo things really easy for me to approach. I was able to read people. I wasn't, Able to before. Oh, yeah. Um, I was able to give people credit where I wasn't able to before. I mean, hell, we're able to have this conversation, you know, um, over a period of time. Uh, Previous, me would never think about having a conversation with a Pentecostal in the way that we're doing it. (laughs) Uh, Um, Well, vice versa, too. (laughs) Yeah. It'd be more like me trying to convince you you're wrong every single week. Which our first few conversations, while good-natured, were probably more like that. (laughs) They probably were. Um, and so basically that's what happened. And then my journey was, uh, just reading philosophers, I'm sorry, rather theologians who had already gone through this philosophical move, uh, Lindbeck, Hans Frey and others that just started to expand my understanding of things in a way that I never, never could have possibly imagined. And would you say it was a new frontier? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly right, right? This is why we're doing what we're doing, is because it opened up for me, at least why I'm doing what we're doing, is because it opened up for me a new frontier, a new way to think about things, and frankly, to be comfortable in ways that I was never comfortable. And I think, like, underneath all of the fascinating philosophy and the thought processes and all of that, what personally what was happening to me was I was finding something that I was told would never happen, especially as people caught wind that I was doing postmodern philosophy. I started to discover that the more I got into it, the more stable my faith was.
1: Okay. Well, so just talk about that for just a minute, because it seems like it should have been the opposite.
0: Yeah. So for me, I had, I I I've learned that my anxiety was, not always, but especially around this, intellectual things, was in the pursuit of finding answers.
1: Hmm.
0: I was convinced, this is the world of ontology, convinced that the answer is out there.
1: For whatever question it is.
0: Whatever it is, yeah. Literally whatever it is outside of reasonable things that people knew, like you're not going to get to know what the face of God looks like, right? Hmm. Uh, Stuff like that. Just some obvious things that you could not do because each system has things you're not able to do. But generally, there'd be an answer to everything. And my anxiety was, I didn't know a whole lot of those answers. Hmm. It was really troublesome. and. I became a jerk because whenever I found out that somebody didn't know something I did, then I could take a position over them. And that made me feel really good because uh, I yeah. knew
1: right. Smug self superiority. It's the trademark of Christians. i yeah. mean, sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in uh, there now, <laughs> Yeah, but that's exactly what it was for me. Uh, and it was more as it is for most Christians. I think it's more of like a defense thing. It's more like, That's what deconstructions would be focused on. And so, well, you're so concerned about finding these answers. Why? Why are you so concerned about that? Dig deep. And for me, it was, well, if I didn't know something, then I wasn't quite sure I actually believed or I didn't actually know if I was right, which would be a huge, devastating thing for me, hugely devastating. Uh, And what I started to see is that I say this often. There are people that I read, like Jacques Derrida, Emmanuel Levinas, and more. You read them, and their conclusion is, well, we really don't know whatever he's talking about. You know, We really don't know if this is true, but this is the best shot we've got at it. Hmm. And to see that in philosophy and not see that in theology, that was probably my final little stepping stone into this reality because I started to realize that the smartest people I've ever read that takes me years to just think through a simple concept of deconstruction, even though it's not simple, you know what I mean? A, a singular concept How about basic well, well, it's basic, not basic yeah. either. Yeah. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> and they are comfortable saying, I don't know.
1: Right. Whereas, you know, my faith, and I think yours too, I don't know, was kind of anathema to what I
0: was taught. Yeah. In fact, if you didn't know, and that's, you know, we kind of do this cheeky thing in this podcast. It's okay not to know Mm -hmm. what you believe or why you believe it, because most of the conservative podcasts and so forth that I've seen is, no, know what you believe and why you believe it. why you
1: believe it, yeah.
0: Yeah. And for me, it created this anxiety that I just... Just started to. I didn't need to get away from it because the more I leaned into postmodern philosophy, the less it became a problem. Hmm. It was just like, okay, so this guy Jacques Derrida talks about grace. He has no idea what he's talking about by his own words, but he's like, this is the best idea I can come up with when it comes to grace, given all the complications that he, you know, clearly illustrates. And it's like, oh, my God, that is so much better than anything I've ever read anywhere else. Well, including the Christians, right? Including the Christians.
1: Because I had one of that with something of his, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, wait a minute. How is this atheist (laughs) Jewish man understanding the gospel better than the Christians are? Yeah. I mean, that's not what he was trying to do. But the things he was saying in there were like, wow, I think we've really missed some stuff.
0: And that's why Ryan referenced John John Caputo, because John Caputo sees that stuff in Derrida, because Derrida's doing a different project entirely, but he sees that stuff and he starts to bring it out. And you're like, he he wrote a book called Hope Against Hope, which is Mm. quoting Romans, right? Mm -hmm. And how you can have hope when it seems like it's hopeless. In fact, that's the beautiful thing of life is to... And for him to do that with the convictions that he has that are sometimes antithetical to the convictions I have, and yet I grow in my faith by reading something like that, it just, it's really hard for me. I can't not do it, you know? Well,
1: I mean, that's what we were told was not only impossible, but was like, Dangerous right. and wrong even, perhaps. Yeah. You know, like idolatrous would come up for me sometimes. Um, and yet what I think this is happening for you too, but what we were experiencing was quite the opposite. Um, that I was I think God was really showing us stuff through this things that God wasn't supposed to be able to work through.
0: <laughs> right. As life giving, not just yeah. You know, I don't think in terms of right and wrong as much as I used to. I certainly think of things that, you know, add to or or take away from me or from whatever. And I started to find postmodern philosophy added to my faith um, where traditional Christian references that I went to, like apologetics or other Mm. things before... They just took away from it. They added anxiety and worry, maybe, but that's not something I really want to add to my faith.
1: But it gave you freedom.
0: Yeah, gave me freedom, and uh, not only freedom, well, uh, the freedom is couched with, I don't know if I want to say permission, but that's the closest word I get to it, like, God's cool with it, type thing. Well,
1: yeah, you know, because before all this, the conception you grew up with and I grew up with, it was kind of like... I never would have been able to say this at the time, but it was like you mean to tell me that God can't handle what some German dude who has migraines all the time <laughs> comes up with and writes down in a book? You mean right. to tell me that like like God uh, is threatened by our philosophy? Like right. what what kind of God is that?
0: Especially when, no, so you're quoting Nietzsche there, right? Yeah, yeah. And Nietzsche has some trouble because he does write explicitly anti-Christian he does. stuff. yeah. But generally, most philosophers do not. Now, they might have um, uh, assumptions that are uh, not Christian, sometimes anti-Christian, like as Ryan just said, Derrida is an atheistic Jew. Oh, he, was. Um, yeah. he was. Yeah. He was, yeah. He's no longer with us. But, and the guy that I study, he is a uh, a pretty traditional Jew, at least most of his life. He probably leans differently. Well, he's dead too, but he probably <laughs> would have leaned differently towards the end of his life. Uh, he was a school teacher in a very traditional school, which is interesting. Um but yeah to to notice that these folks are people that are growing my faith that was cuz I was convinced by people in my tradition that only happens when you engage scripture or the confessions hmm. and, or you know when you worship or whatever you know that And these are sacrament. very much
1: not that
0: very much not like that yeah
1: yeah um okay so That got you to where you are, kind of, or at least where we're talking about. So where does all that leave you now?
0: Good question. Um, I think there are two things, uh, two places it leaves me. One is a recognition that you can't do theology without philosophy. And in fact... Some of the worst philosophers (laughs) are people who fancy themselves theologians, Mm -hmm. and they don't even know it. Um, I was just talking with Ryan before we started this, because as I was waiting um, for our time to start, I was browsing Facebook, and this article came up about Eric Metaxas, uh, an evangelical spokesperson. Who claimed that without God there is no racism?
1: <laughs> Sorry, it's not something to laugh about. But it's or rather,
0: just... yeah, it's silly. I said that wrong. Ryan knows what I mean. That racism isn't wrong without God. That's right. what it. What it. Yeah. What he was saying, and all uh, immediately I know this is a philosophical argument. Um, right. A piss poor one, but yes, yeah, so it is a, a philosophical, very, very bad argument. one. In fact, it gets even worse because his actual argument is that uh, without scripture, <laughs> uh, of course. racism isn't wrong. And it's like, well, okay, you you are on stronger footing saying without God, racism yeah. isn't wrong. Because that means, folks, if someone's never seen the Bible, they can't be racist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's just, it's phenomenal to me how often, I think what's happened now is I just have a sense of when people do philosophy and what's great about that is because I'm somebody that likes to categorize things, it allows me to be kinder to people. It allows me to tackle their stupidity well. It's like, well, okay, let's let's play your thought experiment out. And I do this all the time, drives people crazy. Um, but it does help me like focus the conversation, right? Especially when I'm preaching. I have this experience with some folks. They don't like my preaching because... Uh, I I will co- couch it like this. I'll say it like this. Um, I don't get into philosophical arguments uh, about scripture with people. Like I don't talk about right and wrong uh, in a philosophical way, which many preachers do all the time. So I think a good example is uh, one of the things that I get uh, people laugh at me who know me and other people. Um, Uh, Other people he wouldn't tell because he'd get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, there you go. Thank you. Uh, I'm not going to say what I usually say, but I do complicate morality because morality is a very self-centered approach. And it's it's a self-centered ontology. It's like, I need to be good, and so how do I convince myself or how do I actually live out my goodness, right? Goodness is an ontological word because it's a ness. A ness is always an ontological word. It's about how can I be good in my core or how is something good in my core or completely or fully or whatever. And I I don't talk that way. I don't talk that way at all. And it drives people crazy because I will always be able to complicate something. Sometimes that gets me into trouble and people don't follow along. But when it comes to preaching, I just, I I go with the text and I don't try to take it to another level of uh, creating categories where if you do this, you're awful. And if you do this, you're great. You don't do that because morality as it's conceived of is what people use to
1: uh, feel better about themselves and exclude others. Mm, Right. That's that's kind of the gist I get when you talk about it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. It's that selfish in the way that we talk about it here. Uh, it's oriented towards the self towards me. Right. So churches do this all the time. I I see it and I'm not going to call anybody out, but why do you serve the schools in your area? because it's the moral thing to do. Well, is it? Is it the is moral it? thing to do? <laughs> yeah, or is it because it gets you people in your church? Yeah, right. Because most people would would go out to do something, um, you know, ethical, let's say. When you're not dealing with moral considerations, you do it because the other person needs it, not because it's good or right. Um. But then we're starting to get into tricky philosophical territory there. Uh, but generally speaking, the I think that what I've been kind of dancing around is the big first thing is that philosophy is part of life. There's no way to get away from philosophy, whether you... Uh, make philosophical arguments that sound like theology or political arguments or if you live out your Mm. faith your life in a certain way you're making philosophical choices along the way right and i think every philosophical professor would love for someone like me to say that for anyone to say that because that's probably what they want everybody to realize is that philosophy is just part of life because philosophers aren't coming up with ideas they are describing what they're thinking based off of that stew that Ryan mentioned, all mm-hmm. the stuff that's happening in life. And it's like, okay, we got to do something about this and out comes Kant or Derrida mm-hmm. or so on and so forth. So that, that, that's a big first one. Well, and I think the second one is this podcast, What what we're doing here. It leads me to a place where, I actually get excited talking about faith, especially with people who don't share mine. Um, yeah. I, I love talking to Ryan, even though we, of course, share faith. But I was going to say, a, wait a minute. <laughs> we have a different heritage. Uh, th- that's really great. Most Lutherans that I know, when they do podcasts, they do it with other Lutherans in our church body. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I couldn't could not. I could not do that. Well,
1: you're uh, only a half Lutheran
0: these days. Anyway. <laughs> I'm I kidding. don't know if sort of. uh, there's there some really good Lutherans that I know in my church yeah. body, and most of you are listening to this. So I'm so glad that that's the case. And I think I can say this <laughs> with them like nodding their heads. uh, Lutherans can be very insufferable. And especially when you're trying to have a conversation geared around growth and all you get is doctrinal fidelism. It's just awful, awful. But I I love like talking to people who aren't Christians just to hear their faith. Not so that I, (laughs) so I can convert them, but I'm just like fascinated to, to do that, Uh, to talk to people who don't have my experience uh, I am working with racial injustice in our, well, I'm working for racial justice in our area. That's something previous to me would have never done, right? I'm just so excited to hear more about what's going on and how I, a lonely person might be able to help. And you know, it's just, I think I have a, a an exploration mentality. I think that's probably a good way to summarize a second point i am very excited about exploring and getting to know things rather than hunkering down inside some sort of bunker that Mm. is uh, one of my favorite analogies from a professor that we both love dearly called the glass house where that's what i was doing i was Protecting my glass house and I was going out and shooting everyone and everything that came close, shaved down all the trees and the bushes, built barriers so that winds wouldn't knock it down, you know, and to not have to do that and instead say, hey, let's leave this glass house behind and go find out what's out there. Right. Because it,
1: it wasn't, it felt secure, but a glass house is not secure. Right. Right. It's not safe. It's just... It's, a, it's, a, it's an illusion of safety. It's yeah. an illusion of security when it's actually the opposite, um, which leads to the exploring.
0: Yeah. So I think those are the two big things, is realizing philosophy is part of life and allows for a, an exploration mentality that, of course, as we've already mentioned, allows for a less anxious faith life. Mm-hmm. Well, life in general, but certainly faith, life, and a stronger faith
1: so is there anything then that you would like to say as kind of as we close up here, but like is there something or a few things that you hope to see um as a result of all this stuff
0: for you? Oh wow, that's a good question. What do I hope to see? I think the Biggest thing I hope to see is in my lifetime. It's not going to be anytime soon. Maybe I could couch it like in... uh, Why do I keep saying couch? Um, Biggest thing... How can I say this? So what I'm trying to get at is... I don't want to use this word, but my biggest hope is that we see a reformation that changes the church. Um an adoption of postmodern not not in its technical sense but just after modern philosophy
1: like like the maybe the adoption of postmodern sensibilities, if not the philosophies themselves mm,
0: yeah, so maybe a recognition that we are living in a world full of postmodern tendencies mmm Like this kind of stuff changes the way you see the world and
1: changes the way you think about things. And maybe that's what you're looking for. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it just it sounds like that's what you're looking for in the church. That that shift in disposition and approach to the world.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I I do something I've been watching some psychologists and. This guy, he does some wonderful things. Every once in a while, he'll he'll share what he wants to see. And then he asks the question, why do I want to see that? And so that's immediately where I went, because that's true. I do want to see a movement of the church towards people or towards attitudes that have postmodern tendencies. Why do I want to see that? Part of me wants to say, because then I'll feel less lonely in the church. (laughs) Which is true, probably. Yeah. But the, let's say, altruistic side of me, even though I can complicate that right away.
1: As much as any of us have one.
0: Yeah. Is I want people to experience the same openness Mm. and growth that I have. I know that not everybody is going to be able to read Derrida. I know that. Uh, Shit, I had trouble reading Derrida. (laughs) I think that everybody should try, but, you know, some people would pick up the first paragraph and then that would be it because it's not, you know, it's just not for them. Uh, Nevertheless, just because that's the journey I took to have that growth and that wonder and that security that's based off of an insecure base in a really weird postmodern way Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that they can't have similar experiences just through different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I want because in the grand scheme of things, I'm happier. I am more secure. I am more satisfied with my relationship to God than I ever have been. Hmm. And I can say that fully and completely. There are some days where I don't think about God at all and I don't get worried about it. Other days I'll think about him way too much.
1: That's all you do. Yeah. yeah.
0: <clears throat> and again, I don't worry about it. It's just, I'm much more kind to myself theologically. And I'm much kinder to others as well. I have to always add that because it's it's true. I'm much kinder to people than I used to be. In fact, I continually surprise the people I work with, even though I'm like, oh, I'm such an asshole. I should be doing it differently. But people I work with, they're like, oh, why would you say that? That's just so wonderful. But I I want to be like that. And I'm like,
1: great. You can. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah,
0: I think that would be... I think that's the only one I need to say. I would hope that that could happen because if it does, if I see that in my lifetime, I think I will see a growth in this church and in the people of this church that I know it's going to be fine when I leave. I already know that, right? Because Christ is in command of it, but I'll be able to see it in a way and maybe he'll give me that gift. I don't know,
1: okay, well, thanks for sharing all that, Nate. that um that's i I love he I mean I knew a lot of that story because I was involved in some of it. you know we took a lot of the same classes and stuff, and in some ways mine was similar, but it, it was a pretty significant branching in how it played out. but thanks for sharing it that's uh that's, that was really cool and uh thanks everybody for um well, not just listening to the podcast in general, but I know that got a little, uh, shall I say, thicker than we we'd sometimes do. But <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, so I appreciate you you sticking with us, and even if you skip some stuff in the in the middle, make sure you go back and listen to the last part, okay? Because <laughs> cause, uh, that's that's really what we're trying to do here is we're not trying to reform the church, but it would be really great if we could see some things reform, you know, Mm -hmm. um, if those kind of things could change and we all want to be a part of that. And that's what, that's what we're looking for. So, um, we'd love to hear from you. If you've got anything you want to tell us any of your own stories, whether it's probably maybe not about philosophy, although if it is, that's great too, (laughs) but just how God's been, um, going with you on this similar journey, or maybe a, somewhat similar journey as we've been on, uh, send us an email at uh, frontierfaithpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us any um, things you'd like to maybe hear us talk about in the future, or um, if you're nice about it, maybe some critique. Uh, (laughs) But uh, we we would love to hear from you. So, yeah. So thanks for listening. We appreciate your time and your uh, thinking about these things with us and just want to remind you, it's okay not to know. And that, God will lead you, and God is leading you, and even when it feels scary and there's lots of weeds and jungle in the way, God will take care of you, and it will be okay.